are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Welcome. In today's episode, our guest is Bobby Schindler. On February 25th, 1990, Bobby Schindler's life changed forever when he received the news that his sister, Terry Schiavo, at the age of only 26 years, suddenly collapsed at her home in St. Petersburg, Florida. Paramedics responded to the scene, and Terry was admitted to Northside Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida. Terry was successfully resuscitated, but had brain damage due to lack of oxygen to her brain. Terry was on a ventilator for the first few weeks, but ultimately was taken off mechanical life support and had been breathing on her own since that time. In June of 1990, Michael Schiavo, Terry's husband, was appointed her plenary guardian by the courts. In May of 1998, Michael Schiavo, through his attorney, filed a petition to withdraw life support. Thereafter, Bobby was propelled into a life he'd never imagined. He spoke in defense of his sister on numerous national television and radio programs, including Hannity and Combs, Larry King Live, The Glenn Beck Show, Good Morning America, The Early Show, Dateline NBC, and many others. Bobby co-authored the book, A Life That Matters, The Legacy of Terry Schiavo, as a resource for those seeking to understand the true story of Terry's fight. Bobby Schindler is the president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network and advocates for medically vulnerable in honor of his sister, Terry Schiavo. So welcome, Bobby, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So your sister's case is one that I remember well. So I was a teenager when I remember hearing the news stories and seeing pictures of your sister in the media. Um, Her case was really my first exposure to this idea of tube feedings and that term persistent vegetative state and the concept of life support. But I'm sure, like with most cases that are highly reported on in the media, there's a lot that we, the general public and the legal community, don't know about your sister and her case. So I thought it would be good maybe just to tell us a little bit about your sister, Terry, and, and who she was. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. And it's interesting when people say they were watching or they learned about my sister's case uh, as it was happening. That was kind of the case of my family as well. We were kind of learning as things were happening as well because we were just an ordinary family that was really thrown into the situation and had no idea what to expect or, or really what we were up against. But um, you know, prior to Terry's collapse, um, she, as you mentioned, she was 26 years old. We grew up outside of Philadelphia. We were a, uh, uh, I guess you would say, a typical family. Uh, I had a younger sister, Suzanne, and uh, we we um, went through the parochial school system. Uh, we're a very close family. Had a lot of family and friends that lived close by. Terry, in particular, uh, was somewhat shy growing up. Uh, she was a bit overweight and and wasn't. Uh, someone who was real active as far as playing sports. My sister Suzanne and I uh, were very active with sports, but, but Terry, uh, her passion was, uh, she, she had a, uh, just um, a real passion for animals. And uh, I remember probably this most about my sister, uh, how much she, she uh, cared about animals and 
kind of directed her life to, 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 I think, one day be involved, whether it was becoming a veterinarian or working uh, with animals in some way. Uh, that, that was uh, something I always remember about my sister and, and um, also her, her great sense of humor. Uh, but but also her her loyalty and and her her um, uh, commitment to family. She was very close to her grandparents, uh, my mom's parents, who lived in New York. She would go visit there for the summers. And uh, uh, Terry and I were uh, thirteen months apart, so we, as we grew grew older, we we grew especially close and had a uh, had a wonderful relationship. Her and I, uh, particularly when we when our family uh, moved to Florida uh, in nineteen. 19- uh, 86. Uh, Terry, who had been married at that time to Michael Shivo, they were married in 1984. They also moved to Florida. So um, uh, in 1986, uh, our, our entire family relocated from the Philadelphia area and, and was living in St. Petersburg, Florida at that time. So, um, you know, I can, I can answer more of your questions about my sister if you yeah. like, but uh, um, she was, uh, I, I just remember. Um, her is just a a, a wonderful uh, wonderful sense of humor, and, and someone uh, who I um, just grew very close to as as we were getting older. And when when she collapsed, it, it not only devastated me but by our entire family. Well, take me back to that time. So take me back to February 1990. So you mentioned you know in the beginning that a lot of your sister's case you remember hearing about. Um, initially in the news as well. But tell me what you remember most about those days that immediately followed Terry's collapse. Well, immediately f- following her collapse, we, we weren't sure if Terry was going to live or die. I mean, it was that serious. Um, and I remember it was something, it was for me, it was, it was hard to believe what was going on because there was no indication that there was anything wrong with my sister. Uh, in fact, I had saw, we lived in the same apartment complex in Florida. Uh, so we just lived um, um, just minutes away. In fact, I was the first one there that night when she collapsed. Michael uh, called uh, my father after Terry collapsed, and my father said, did you call 911? And Michael said no. So he said, hang up the phone and call 911. And then my father called me and said, Bobby, go over to your sister's. And this was in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, there There was something wrong. So when I got there, I wasn't overly concerned. I thought she had perhaps just uh, fainted or passed out uh, because, as I said, I, I had saw her just a, a few hours earlier. In fact, she came over uh, to visit, and I had asked her. I, had, I was living with a buddy of mine, and we were going to head out for the night. It was a Saturday night. And I said, do you want to come along with us? Because Terry would often join us. Be, uh, Michael was a restaurant manager, so he worked evenings. So Terry was alone a lot at night, and she would oftentimes we would – uh, go out together, but she uh, said she was going to go home. Um, her and Michael weren't, were not getting along that day, so she was going to go home and wait for him to get home. And that was the last time I saw her before her collapse. So when I got after my father called me and I and I got to the apartment they were living in, Michael answered the door. He was frantic, and I remember going uh, seeing my sister lying on the floor, and I reached down and kind of shook her shoulder. I said, "Come on, Terry, get up." And she was breathing, but it was labored, almost like she was snoring. And it was then that the paramedics got there. And when they came over and, and assessed my sister, I knew right then and there there was something seriously wrong because, uh, if I remember correctly, they couldn't find a pulse. And well, we went into that, um, you know, they, they went into that emergency mode, uh, so to speak, and, and, uh, and did everything they could to try and get her, 
I guess her heart beating because at that point, I guess it had stopped. Now, tell me a little bit. So from from February when when the collapse initially happened, and then I know that that Michael ended up filing for guardianship of your sister in, in June of 1990. What was happening between that that initial time frame? Were the family and Michael, everyone communicating and on board with Terry's care? Right. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, as, as you noted, Terry, Terry when her, her, uh, as a consequence of her collapse, she went several minutes without oxygen, and that's where she experienced a, a pretty serious brain injury. And, and it was uh, just after a couple of weeks. She was initially, as I said earlier, we, we weren't sure if she was going to live. And uh, she was, um, uh, she had a ventilator and all other types of, uh, and anything that could keep her alive at that point. And it was, she was in pretty bad shape. But she, she recovered pretty quickly to the point where uh, she did not need a ventilator. And she was really free from any assistance other than a feeding tube. Uh, to provide her her food and water, Terry had difficulty swallowing because of her brain injury. So she needed a feeding tube uh, to to live, and, th- and that was the only thing sustaining her. Just like uh, food and water sustains all of us. Uh, but uh, from that point on, a few weeks after Terry's uh, collapse, that was the only thing uh, sustaining her, and she emerged to the point where she was no she, no longer in a coma, but she was in a condition what doctors refer to as a persistent vegetative state and um, um, and as as you asked uh, yes Michael and our family uh, were working together to try and provide Terry uh, rehabilitation and therapy because there was a rehab doctor who felt although Terry's brain injury was serious felt that with aggressive uh, therapy and rehabilitation uh, she was a good candidate to improve um, recover to what point we didn't know, but to improve, um, you know, hopefully to a point, um, you know, with, with brain injuries, you just don't know initially the patient, you know, the, the, um, what, you know, what the recovery prognosis can be, but, but we were pretty encouraged, uh, at least initially that, that with the aggressive rehabilitation theory that Terry could improve. Now, tell me a little bit about the guardianship proceeding um, that occurred in, in June of 1990. Were you and your family on board with the guardianship? Um, how did that play out? Well, we didn't know about it. Uh, Michael, again, as you mentioned, Michael did uh, go to court and was appointed her guardian in, in June, just a few months after Terry's collapse. And, and there was nothing in writing. Terry had never written anything instructing who would be her guardian, who would be her medical proxy, uh, whether it would be Michael or husband or, or my parents. So Michael had to go to court and he was appointed her guardian, but he never he never told my parents, which was strange because as you mentioned, they we were getting along at that point. Uh, so we, we had got noticed that, that Michael was her guardian. Now we, we weren't too concerned at that time because we were getting along and it seemed to us that Michael was doing everything he could to provide Terry the care and treatment and rehabilitation uh, that that would help improve her condition. Uh, but that didn't last uh, very long. Now, I don't know if my family would have contested, my parents would have contest, contested his guardianship, mm-hmm. but if, if they knew he was filing for guardianship, they could have at least asked perhaps for joint guardian where um, you know they, they could have also had uh, some say in her medical decisions uh, but but Michael being the guardian and appointed the guardian by court without my parents knowing, that gave him essentially 100% control over Terry's any decisions medically, any any decisions at all. 
had to go through Michael, and, and that left my parents uh, really without the ability to to provide anything for Terry unless Michael approved it. Now fill us in. So between when the guardianship was was filed and Michael was appointed as the guardian to the point where he filed the petition to withdraw life support, which really kind of propelled, you know, the, the case and, and the litigation that transpired afterwards. What was happening between that, that time frame? How was Terry doing? What kind of care was she, was she needing? Um, and how was the family getting along with Michael at that point? Right. So 1990, she collapsed. Uh, Terry emerges from her coma and she's receiving pretty aggressive rehabilitation and therapy. And, and it's all, uh, as we said, Michael and my parents were getting along uh, well at that point. And Terry was starting to improve when, when she was receiving that rehabilitation and therapy. In fact, she was starting to form words uh, and our family, and, and this is all noted in her medical records. This isn't something that can't be verified. Uh, so our family and Michael included was, were, were encouraged by Terry's slow, but, um, slow, slow project, but nonetheless, she was, I guess, moving in the right direction. Uh, in a manner of speaking. And this was going on between 1990 and 1991, 90, almost close to 1992, so for about a year and a half. Uh, during that same time, simultaneously, Michael had initiated a, a malpractice lawsuit against Terry's um, do- treating doctors before her collapse, her gynecologist and her, and her general physician. And um, he was suing for $20 million for Terry's uh, lifelong uh, care, treatment, and rehabilitation. And, and Michael was uh, making the argument that they were responsible for Terry's collapse. So this went to trial in November of, of 1992. And again, at that time, everyone was working in harmony to provide the best care and therapy for my sister, and she was improving. So we were all feeling pretty good at that point with Terry's future, particularly if, if Michael was successful in getting the money he was seeking to, to provide for Terry's lifelong care. Um, so that, that's kind of where we were in 1992 and, and the jury after the trial it was a week long trial, the jury came back and, and did award, um, monies for Terry, which is significantly less, but it was over a million dollars. And, um, and Michael was also awarded, uh, $600,000 for loss of consortium. So this money was put in a trust fund. Michael, that was Michael's money, the 600,000, but the one point, I think it was close to 1.5 million was put in, put in a medical trust fund for Terry's lifelong uh, care, treatment, and therapy. And, and Michael testified to this in, in the trial, the, uh, the November trial, the malpractice trial. So as I said, we were, um, we were encouraged, at least we had some money that was going to help my sister. So the money was, was after all the, all the, you know, whatever had to be done was, was completed, finished, the, the trust was set up in January of 1993. And this is when everything changed, uh, Rebecca. There was, in, in February, uh, Michael and my parents met at the nursing home where Terry was being treated, being cared for, and my parents and Michael had a confrontation. And my, my father, now this is where Michael says one thing and, and my father and mother says, you know, they, they, they said that they approached Michael and said, Michael, there's money now available for Terry. When are you going to start providing her with the care, the treatment, the therapy, the continued therapy that you promised um, to the jury and to, and to Terry. And that's when um, 
And that's when a rift occurred. Michael said, I'm her guardian. I'll make the decisions from this point on. And, um, and essentially cut my, my, my parents out from any, any, um, uh, really any, any involvement in my sister's care from that point on. So ironically enough, it was February 14th, uh, 1993. And it was just a few months later. So, so now my, my parents were basically visiting Terry alone and weren't receiving any information about her medical care by orders of Michael because he was the guardian. And he, and he, and he told the people that were caring for Terry, the nurses, not to give any information to my parents, to, to my sister, Suzanne, or, or myself, if we would visit Terry about her, about her. Mm about her condition or anything. And she wasn't receiving any therapy rehabilitation from that point on. She was basically being warehoused. And it was just a few months later that Michael instructed that same nursing home not to give her antibiotics, which would have killed her. I mean, she would have uh, essentially turned into sepsis. Mm -hmm. uh, she had a UT infection, would have turned into sepsis, and she would have died. The uh, nursing home would not allow it and said that they had to continue treating her. It was against the law at that point, I guess. So Michael was unsuccessful. And it was also the same, around that same time frame, when we later found out that Michael was living with and admittedly engaged to another woman uh, that he said he was going to marry uh, whenever, I guess, Terry would would pass on. So th that was kind of the, the, the line the line where things changed mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in the beginning part of 1993. And it was just a few years later uh, that Michael did, in fact, petition the court. This was... Uh, five years later, sometime in 19, late 97 or early 1998, Michael petitioned a Pinellas County Court uh, for permission to remove her feeding tube, her food and water, as I mentioned earlier, was, which was the only thing keeping her alive, which was a which was a shock to my family. We were blindsided. Well, definitely very helpful to have have that background, and I, and that's what I was going to ask too is is how you how you and your and your family heard about the petition being filed, and then what your initial reaction was when you saw that that petition had been filed. Well, I, personally, I was, as you can imagine, I was extremely upset. Now there there was really no communication. There was some legal between 1993 when Michael first tried to end Terry's life by the by refusing to um, uh, asking the, the nursing home not to administer antibiotics for her UT infection. So from that time to we received notice in 1998 from Michael's attorney who was, was going to ask the court to remove her feeding tube, there was some, and I don't want to get on the minutia, but there was some um, things going back and forth in the courts. My family was trying to to, to get Guardian, take Guardian away, away from Michael so they can care for Terry. They, I think they saw the writing on the wall that he was living with another woman. But that they were unsuccessful. So, yeah, so fast forward now to 1998, we received this letter. And as you can imagine, our family is just uh, we're in shock that Michael would attempt to do this. Um, uh, so we, we immediately went out and uh, looked for representation to, uh, to, to try and stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. Now, after a long legal battle, um, the the accumulation of that of that battle ended on March eighteenth, two thousand five, when there was a court order um, that that ordered that Terry's feeding tube be be removed. Take me back to to that and what happened, and then what transpired afterwards. So, so the actual um, you want me to to go over the uh, the the hearing that. Uh, permitted Terry's feeding food and, food and water to be 
to be stopped. Um, I think just, yeah, but, just give us a little brief idea of what was happening. I don't think we have to get into the, the exact details, but just a little idea yeah. of what was happening with the family and then what transpired afterwards. Right. Well, well, Michael, in case you're asking, you know, what, what was what was the reason Michael mm-hmm. was giving to remove her, her feeding tube? And, and he said that Terry made a wish before her collapse, because as I mentioned, there was nothing in writing. Right. Uh, there, was, there was nothing as far as, we didn't know anything as far as what Terry you know, would want, so to speak. So Michael was claiming before her collapse, and, and this, this all surfaced eight years later, I mean, after initial collapse. Michael never mentioned this back in the beginning when you would think someone would if these were someone's wishes, but they waited, he waited eight years. Now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he's telling the court that Terry made a wish before her, she collapsed. If she was ever in this condition, she wouldn't want to live this way, whatever that meant. Uh, so so that's, what he, that's what he took to the court. Uh, there was a week-long trial. It, it, went to, uh, it went to trial in January of 2000 in front of Judge George Greer. Uh, it was a week-long trial, and, and after the trial, um, and Michael brought in doctors, said that, that Terry's quality of life was such where uh, she wasn't going to improve. Uh, Michael um, used this to convince the judge, along with these uh, hearsay evidence that these were Terry's wishes, uh, convinced the judge that it was in her best interest to uh, to die. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Mm-hmm. Our family objected to this. We we testified that Terry never never even spoke about these types of things. Would would not want to be starved and dehydrated to death. Um, and we brought in friends and, and family members that all verified this. That Terry never ever spoke about these types of things. Uh, but nevertheless, the uh, and, and I'm, of course I'm leaving out a lot right, of the details. Right. But but that's essentially what what Michael's argument was, and the judge agreed with him. And in January, uh, uh, February 11th, uh, 2000, the judge issued a ruling that Michael could, in fact, remove Terry's food and hydration, which, as, as, as um, I keep mentioning, it's important to pe- for people to notice because um, uh, it's always referred to Terry as you know, she was on life mm-hmm. support. The, the life support that we're referring to is a feeding tube that was supplying her food and hydration because she had difficulty swallowing. So the judge granted Michael permission to uh, to remove her feeding tube, and of course our family objected to that. So we we went through the appeal. We appealed that initial ruling, and, and then went into this long protracted legal battle that lasted about five years. What do you think is one of the most commonly, you know, misreported or misunderstood? I mean, you mentioned one of the facts being that that people think that Terry was on life support, where really all she needed was the tube feedings. Are there any other, you know, really common misunderstood facts about your sister's case? Well, I, th- I think, yeah, th- well, there is. I mean, her, her uh, condition, I think, uh, has been portrayed in a way that isn't accurate. Uh, also, it, it's very important to know that feeding tubes, they, they used to be, uh, you know, Terry was, remember, Terry was not dying. She had no terminal illness. The only thing keeping her alive was food and hydration through a feeding tube. There, there was, um, what, what people don't realize today is, is over the past 20, 30 years, feeding tubes are, are now defined as medical treatment, as artificial life support, as extraordinary care. Because of this redefining of feeding tubes, which used to be considered basic and ordinary care, it's now legal in all 50 states to either deny or withdraw from individuals. So uh, every day people are being starved and dehydrated to death in, in the same way that Terry, Terry was killed. So I think a lot of people were confused because because feeding tubes are now defined as artificial life support in the, in the news media. Whenever there was a story written about my sister, they would, they would say that she's being sustained by artificial life support. So immediately people would think, had the perception that Terry was, was 
you know, connected to a ventilator. And there was all types of machines, I guess, so to speak, that were keeping her alive when, in fact, it, it was only food and hydration. In fact, there was a, a speech therapist that went on record with the court, filed an affidavit that evaluated Terry, uh, Terry's medical records, her conditions, looked at videos of my sister, listened to her trying to speak, and, and really believed uh, that if Terry had the proper therapy, even, at, even, what, almost 10 years after her initial collapse, that she could have weaned Terry off the feeding tube where she could have been able to eat food without the assistance of a feeding tube, but she was never granted that opportunity. Uh, I guess that I think Michael had tried back in the early stages to, to, to feed her without a feeding tube, which was unsuccessful, but uh, there was a speech therapist that believed uh, that Terry, if she, in fact, she even said to the court that she had treated uh, patients in worse condition than my sister, and she was successful in, in weaning them off a feeding tube, but we never were offered that opportunity because Mike, again, Michael was the guardian who would not allow it. So you know, that, that, that was one thing, uh, Rebecca, and it was, it was, it was important because even to this day, uh, we do a lot of speaking and people do believe that Terry was, you know, needed all types of, uh, there was, there was a lot right. going on that, right. that, that, that needed to keep Terry alive. In fact, I, I, I will often, in fact, almost every time I tell people when I'm speaking that, if Terry were alive today, we, we could take her anywhere. She could have been, say, if I was speaking in California, we, we could have brought Terry to California mm -hmm. and she could have participated in the event because all she needed was a wheelchair. We could have taken her, mm -hmm. you know, taken her anywhere we, we wanted. But um, the, the other thing that, that was upsetting, if I, uh, Rebecca, was uh, Michael and his attorney would go on national media and they would say, look at this poor girl, look at her condition, uh, look at her quality of life. When, when, when they when Michael was being the guardian, was responsible for her being in that condition. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, from 1992 up until the, you know, when this thing turned into an international story, uh, Terry was essentially warehoused and, and abandoned by Michael uh, and not provided the therapy and rehabilitation that he promised and that she should have been receiving. And anytime you, you do that, you abandon someone and don't provide them even range of motion, with that type of brain injury, they're, they're, they are naturally going to deteriorate. So uh, to, to blame, to, to use Terry's quality of life as a reason to enter life when they're the ones responsible for being in that condition in the first place was what was upsetting and disingenuous uh, when Mike would make that claim to, to, uh, you know, to basically validate why he was doing right. what he was doing. And just to kind of wrap things up, and in, the, in our next episode, we're going to really focus on um, your nonprofit and the advocacy work that, that you've done and kind of um, focusing on, on where we go from here. But I wanted to just find out one last, last thing in conclusion. When you think about, you know, the final days of, of your sister, um, right before her passing, what was one of the hardest things or hardest parts of, of that, those, that, that time, really? Well, two things really stood out. Uh, well, one was just walking into a room. Terry was in hospice at the time. And once the feeding tube was removed, March 18th, 2005. So her, Terry's feeding tube was removed and she started the process of, of dying by starvation and dehydration. The same thing that would happen to every one of us if, uh, if our food and water was denied. And walking into a room and watching a human being to slowly die by the lack of, of water and food was unbearable, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. It was, you know, we, I often use the term mm -hmm. barbaric and just inhumane. I'm just watching this happening in front of me. 
And I'm thinking that this is insane that we are permitting this, a human being to die in, in one of the most inhumane ways we would. It, it wasn't too long ago that the thought of purposely dehydrating and starving a, a disabled person to death would have been thought of as barbaric would have been criminal but today it, it happens all the time and it was happening in front of our, our eyes my family uh, something no family should have to, have to witness and and watching my parents you know i don't know what was worse i uh was watching terry go through this obviously it was was gut-wrenching but at the same time my mom and dad walking into a room and watching their daughter their child die this way and not be able to do anything to stop it. And there was police that were surrounding my sister mm -hmm. to make sure that Terry would die and no one could come in there and, and try to provide her any type of relief, any type of water um, to, to help her or to offer, you know, my, the, the, the judge denied Terry comfort care during this process. He would not allow, there was an order written to, to not even even provide her comfort care during this process. So she died in one of the most horrible ways you can imagine. And watch my parents have to watch their daughter die this way was un right. was unbearable. Yeah. And my father even, uh, we, we, my dad never recovered from this, as you can imagine. Uh, our parents, you know, their unconditional love for their child. And he told me uh, privately one day that he would never be able to forgive himself for not being able to stop this from happening to his daughter. And my dad has mm -hmm. since passed. He passed a short time after Terry's death, a few years. And you know, I will always remember mm -hmm. him telling me that. And it's, it's, it's something that uh, it's just always um, it's been on my mind. And my father died with that on mm -hmm. his heart. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for sharing your sister's story with us. In our next episode, like I said, we'll be discussing your advocacy work and your nonprofit organization. Um, and thank you all for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on iTunes and find all the past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. Thank you.